1843, a German scholar, young German scholar, he went by the title of Count Tischendorf, was making his way across uh, Middle East. He stopped for the night at St. Catherine's Monastery on Sinai. And uh, when he was there, it got chilly at night, and he noticed that the monks rolled out this barrel of old molded manuscripts, and they started throwing these in the fire. And at this point, Tischendorf noticed something, and he'll mention something. Let me see if I can grab the quote. He says, I perceived in the middle of the great hall a large and wide basket full of old parchments. And the librarian, who was a man of information, told me that two heaps of papers like these, moldered by time, had been already committed to the flames. What was my surprise to find amid this heap of papers a considerable number of sheets of a copy of the Old Testament in Greek, which seemed to me to be one of the most ancient that I had ever seen. It was. It was to be known as the Codex Sinaiticus. The, the monks noticed Tischendorf's response, and I don't know what his response was. You know, you know, holy smoke! You know, I don't know what he said, but somehow the monks realized, ah, what have we got here? And so they, they recognized that the value was not dependent on whether or not these things were moldy or in great condition, but their identity, the oldest known Old Testament manuscript that we have today. Uh, 1969, probably. I must have gotten in trouble because I was out cleaning the garage. It was one of the things that my dad threatened me with on a regular basis. Our garage was very clean all the time. But, but I was in the garage, and we had, when we moved in, there were these, these cabinets built in. And most of them we just filled with, you know, half gallons of paint that we'll never use again and bicycle parts and all this kind of junk. But there was one cabinet that was off in the corner that was hard to get to that the guy who lived before us had his junk in there. We just kind of left it. But anyway, I'm cleaning this thing out, and so I'm getting all the junk out. And, and then there's these newspapers, and I grab the newspapers. I'm walking to the garbage. And then I notice that the date on the one is November 23rd, 1963. JFK was assassinated November 22nd, 1963. And Chicago Tribune, big front page. There's his motorcade in Dallas. And I flip to the next one, and, and it was, uh, I don't know, they were looking for probably Oswald at that point. The next one, uh, Jack Ruby had shot uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Right front page, and I'm holding these, thinking we'd been setting gallons of paint on these and bicycle parts on these. Now, you're probably not going to be able to retire with these papers, but they became very valuable, not because you liked the Chicago Tribune, or even if you cared for JFK as a president, uh, that was irrelevant. Their identity is what made them valuable. And the way we would treat them was based on whether or not we knew their identity. My mom, when we were in Chicago, she worked for a baseball card collector. She was their nanny. Believe it or not, people can make a living doing this. I guess if you get the right cards, this guy was actually a broker. And one day he called my mom into his office and he said, uh, Ruby, I want you to touch this card. Don't touch the edges. Put your fingers, touch the middle. And I, I can't, I don't know who this was. I can't remember. But the guy said, tomorrow I'm getting on a plane and I'm going to sell this to Wayne Gretzky for several hundred thousand dollars. And it looks like regular cardboard to my mom, regular ink. There's nothing special about that. Uh, what made this card so valuable was not the, the construction of it, but it was its identity. And the way you would treat the card was based on whether or not you understood what the identity was. Let's say after church today, I said, you know what, I would like you to have coffee with my, my, myself and I got a friend coming, Barry, and we're going to sit down and have coffee. He wants to have coffee with you. And you're saying, you know, today it's a nice day out and I got to take advantage of it. You know, I, I just don't have time. And I said, well, wait, wait, wait. Barry is President Barack Obama. 
and he's asked to have coffee with you. Now, whether you're a Democrat or not, whether you voted for him or not, he's the President of the United States, and he wants to have coffee with you. I have a feeling you'll be there. The way you would treat him a few minutes earlier is radically different because you know who he is, his identity, and because of that, that's going to determine how you treat him. Now, this is what I want you to do. Just a second, if your spouse is in this room, look over at him for just a second. Just look at him. Now, I know this is kind of awkward, especially if you had a battle this morning. I know, just kind of look at him for a second and look back. It's okay. Do you know the identity of your spouse? I don't know, we, we think, oh yeah, big sinner. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, that, that's, we're all in that category. Got that part. We've already covered that in earlier sessions. Got that one down. But do you know who they really are? What if I told you that at birth, hospital, they were mixed up. Actually, their last name is Rockefeller or Buffett, and they are the sole uh, heir to the inheritance. You might start treating them a little bit nicer, huh? Yeah, well, you know. Uh, or what if I was to say, you know, again, mix up in the, in the hospital, all this. Actually, the royal blood, and they are, they are the, the next heir to the throne. What if I said that it's actually the reality is much greater than those two things? That might affect how we respond, how we treat, how we value our spouse. Will you turn with me in your Bibles? One verse we're looking at this morning, 1 Peter 3, 7. Just one little verse, but it's powerful verse. It's very, got a ton of stuff in there, and I'm pretty convinced that if we can master what it says, not just by knowing it, but by living it, it has the potential to transform not just us, but our marriages to what God intended them to be. First Peter 3, 7, key, key verse. Now, it's written directly to husbands. I believe there are principles that pertain to, to both parties of the uh, marriage, however. And we'll be, sometimes you'll hear me referring to spouse or f- referring to husbands, and, and just know that's where we're going with it. But let's look right into this thing. Let's camp on it a little bit this morning and see what we might be able to p- apply Understand from this. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, Peter just spent the top six verses ahead of this talking to the wives. He only spends one verse on men, maybe because we can't figure that much out. I don't know, but he only gives one, but still it's a pretty powerful verse. And he starts off, he says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. What does it mean to be considerate as you live with your wives? You know, be kind to them once in a while, I suppose. That's what we think of consideration. Actually, the word, it's the same word that most often, when it's translated in the New Testament, is the word for knowledge. It's gnosko. It means to know. A literal translation would be live in accordance with knowledge or according to knowledge with your spouse. Now, that might not help us a whole lot. What is this? I was hoping for a little romance. I'm getting egghead stuff here. What is that about? We live according to knowledge. Well, there are two things. There's some ambiguity here in the text, and I believe that the ambiguity is intentional by the Holy Spirit because this can mean one of two things. I believe it means both of them. First of all is live according to Bible knowledge. In other words, Peter's saying, when you're living with your spouse... Do it according to the directions, the direction manual. This book is a major marriage manual, by the way. Uh, years ago, uh, I'm driving, I've got a green Taurus wagon. That wasn't a wagon. I had a Taurus wagon in the past, but a uh, little green Taurus. I'm going on a road trip. 
as I'm driving, my real, little red light pops on the dash. Now, my MO with this kind of thing is you just keep going until whatever it is just falls off and you're going to be fine. Right? <laughs> so I'm driving, and the little red light's there, and it's staying on for a while, and all of a sudden, bad smell. And I'm keep going, and all of a sudden it's making some noise. Don't like the way it's going, but then it starts slowing down. I'm going, oh no! So I, I pull off. What happened here? So I pull off. I get on an exit, and I, when I finally am able to get this thing into McDonald's, it's like, you know, a half a mile an hour. Uh, it was out of oil. I burned out my engine. It, it cracked the block. I mean, the whole this thing was a huge expense and ruined my road trip on top of it all. Uh, major damage because. I didn't go according to the directions. You know, the goofy thing is, while I'm driving, two feet away in the glove box is the owner's manual that if I would have stopped and looked at it, what do I do when I see this red light? It would have told me, stop immediately, you know, fix it, whatever. No, but who's got time for the directions? And what Peter's saying is if you decide to live your marriage not according to the directions, incredible damage can happen. And sometimes we don't realize this until... We're pushing the thing into McDonald's. It's just a big mess. And we're saying, well, why didn't I look at the directions? Wouldn't it be cool if we looked at the directions ahead of time? That's what Peter is referring to. Now, um, let me talk to single folk for just a minute. You're getting ready to get married. You're trying to figure out if this is the right person or not. Right? Is this the right person or not? And so you notice, you look inside and you notice their heart has a, it says, it's for Jesus and for you. And you think, this person loves Jesus and they love me. Of course, how can it go wrong? They love Jesus and they love me. Oh, it's wonderful, right? And then we get married. And the rose-colored glasses come off and we begin to see compartments in their heart that we didn't see before. Now, why this is so important? Why this is so important is because this is who we all are. Everybody. And every word and every action and every attitude and every value, it's going to be filtered through this. So, so please hear me for just a second, young people, young people, single people. It's not enough to say they've got a Jesus compartment in their heart. They love Jesus. Forget that for a moment. I, I don't want to hear, are they a Christian? No. question is, how big is that compartment? Are they godly? Now notice, there's only so much room in your heart. And the bigger the Jesus compartment, then the other ones are going to have to shrink. They're not going to be... Now, you can't eradicate all of them. There's nobody who doesn't have any. The other, they're, 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 everybody lives this side of, the, of heaven. Uh, but I'm just telling you that if you get somebody and you've talked yourself into thinking, just as long as they've got a Jesus compartment somewhere, we're cool, you're setting yourself up for ma- major trouble. The bigger the Jesus compartment, the better. Now, now here's where it goes for us married folk and all, all on, single folk too. Um, I've done three, four dozen weddings, I don't know. But one thing I've said in all of them is the greatest thing you can do for your spouse. You know what it is. I'll say, you know what? You've invested a lot of money in this, in this wedding. You've invested a lot of time in this wedding. You've invested a lot of energy in this wedding. What have you invested in your marriage? There's an investment you need to make in your marriage and you need to make it on a regular basis and that's this. The greatest thing you can do for your spouse, the greatest thing you can do for your, your marriage is to regularly... Spend time in God's Word. Whether it's in a corporate sense, and I would say both corporate and private, where there's other people as well as privately. Not to say, I'm going to be an egg here, I'm going to learn Bible facts, and I want to know all the 12 tribes, I want to know the divisions of the Holy Land, just because I've got, I can win a Bible trivia contest. But so I'll be transformed. If we go to God's Word and we say, God, would you show me something today? Would you help my life to be a little bit different right now? 
or when I get done than it is right now? I think that's a prayer God wants to answer. That's the whole purpose of his word. And Peter says, when are you going to do marriage? Make sure you're living your marriage, your life, according to God's word, according to knowledge of his word. Uh, your goal, single person, is to get the person that you can who's got the biggest Jesus box, right? But also this, your goal, single person, is to have the biggest Jesus box. You can be doing incredible things for your marriage today. Marriage doesn't start down the road. It starts today by building your own understanding of living according to God's word. A second possibility here when Peter says live in consideration, uh, live in knowledge of, is spousal knowledge. Spousal, you know, when I was single, I got married when I was 28, old man, I got married. Um, but you know what? I got up when I wanted to get up. And I went to bed when I wanted to go to bed. And if I want to stay up all night watching TV, I did it. And I watched what I wanted to watch. No stupid chick flicks. We were watching great movies and blood and stuff. That was what, and, and, and you know what? I spent my money how I wanted to spend it. And if I didn't want to spend it this way, I didn't spend it. And I went to things. You know what I went to? I went to things that were going to be best for me. Either I wanted to or it was politically expedient for me to go to it. But that's why I went. I lived my life in consideration of moi. But you get married. And what do we do? We think, it's just going to continue on. I'm living my life in consideration of me, and now I will have fun because someone else will live their life in consideration of me as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Notice, single people, that laughter was from the married folk. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Do you know the uh, dreams of your spouse? Do you know the, the greatest fears that they have? Today, not fears they had 15 years ago. I know we think we know all this, but do you really know what they really want, what they're really looking forward to, what they're really afraid of? Peter says, know those things and live in consideration of those things. Now, this was huge for this culture especially because the guys here, they lived in consideration, and this was just their culture for them. That's what the, the women were little more than chattel. They were there for him. The kids were there for him. Everybody was there for him. And Peter looks at these guys and says, oh, no, 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 no. Whole new day. When you get married, it's not about getting people who are going to make you happy. You sign up for ministry. You live your life in consideration of them. You make your decisions about where you're going to go, about how much money you're going to spend, about where you're going to go to eat, and what you're going to do for vacation. With them in mind, live in consideration of them. That's a huge, huge principle. Radical, radical at, at this time especially. Peter goes on. He says, and... Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Notice why we treat them with respect. Not because they're worthy of it. Not because every word flowing from their mouth is gold. Not because they are all committed to me. Not because they're as sexy as Beyonce. Or because they're as giving as Mother Teresa. Or that, that they, they have everything cooked at the right time. Or they bring home the check or they're faithful or they're loyal. That's not the reason why. We respect them. Peter says it's not because of what they do. It's because of who they are. The weaker partner. What in the world does this weaker partner thing mean? Well, again, it could be that women were very vulnerable in a time where there wasn't a lot of social agencies or a lot of women's rights stuff. If a gal was put out, she was at the mercy of, of men of a culture and society which was not very friendly to her. Very, very vulnerable. 
Uh, weaker could also refer, of course, to physical strength. Now, there are some exceptions, obviously. But generally speaking, women pertain just a, a percentage of a man's physical strength. And so you can imagine, this is really a wild, poor situation for women if you think about it. You've got men who are dominant in their strength, hooked up with a society that, that treats women poorly and allows men to do whatever they want to them. Poor, this has got to be a scary place. And Peter says, yes, man, you have some physical strength. I've given you some, some position of domination, perhaps, but you don't use it against them. You only use it to serve them. You live in consideration of them the weaker partner uh, a very good translation one I, I prefer with this is the word weaker can be more fragile or more costly or more precious I like that because the word partner is the word for vessel so you're supposed to live with her as she is the more priceless vessel the more fragile vessel you know in my, my home we got different cups mugs this is uh, probably, I don't know, 99 cents at Walmart is probably the deal. It's a thick, thick mug. It's a man mug, the thick mug. Uh, you can bang this thing around. Of course, it's, it's still ceramic, so you throw it or you hit it with a hammer, there's going to be some problems. But still, in our house, we have these, this is, we, we use these things tough. We have the kids can clean these things. We shove them in the dishwasher. These things will last forever. They'll take a licking and keep on ticking. These are our, our 99 cent Walmart mugs. If something happens to them, not a big deal. We throw it away, we get another one anyway. But we've got other kind of mugs in my house. We treat them a little bit differently. When my wife was just a baby, she had an uncle who was in the military, and he's in uh, the Orient someplace, and he picked her up a set of china. This is uh, Noritake, Noritake, I don't even know how you pronounce it, but it's ivory china. If you look at it very, very thin, I don't know if this is real gold. I like to fancy that it is. But... Uh, you, can, you can't see it, but, but incredible detailing uh, into each mug. Um, truth is, we don't use these at the home very often. Special occasion. Truth is that when we do, the kids are not allowed to wash them. I wash them. They don't go in the dishwasher. Be very careful. Just if you accidentally bump one against the faucet, it's going to chip. And I have this goofy feeling that I can probably buy a gross of these babies for what this thing costs. Now, here's the problem. Men, in uh, our marriages, we sometimes treat our wives like they're the mug. We're hard and we're strong. And they start acting like they are the China. And they start, what are you crying for? I don't know. What are you crying for? Come on. You need to deal with it and put up with it. And, and we're treating them hard. And maybe they want to, to act more like a mug. I don't know. But maybe they, they do. But they can't because God has wired them to be a more fragile, a more costly vessel. And when we respond to our wives as if they are this, and they should just be able to deal with it, and maybe we're too harsh, and maybe we're a little bit strong, but we don't need to be. Peter says, you have to understand who you're dealing with. It's not necessarily a choice. It's the way God wired. It is a more costly vessel. Oh. Let's say you had a uh, 16th Dynasty Ming Voss. Now, you could retire on the 16th Dynasty Ming Voss. But let's say you've got a 16th Dynasty Ming Voss. It's in great condition. Anybody chip on it. And for whatever reason, you don't have it in a safety security box someplace. You've got it on the mantle of your house, your fireplace, whatever reason. 
you just had a rough day, right? You came home and you've had a head cold and you got a ticket and the boss yelled at you and this big client that was worth a lot of cash backed out and uh, you didn't look when you pulled in the driveway and when the kids left their bike there and you hit it and you got junk rolling, coming out from underneath your car right now and you're just, and you come in the house and you're just having a bad day. And, and, and all of a sudden the kid, one of the kids playing with the boss and they throw it to you and you grab this thing. What do you do? You throw it against the wall. What if you even cut your finger? It's on the place where it's nicked. Do you throw it against the wall? No. Just in case you didn't know, you don't do that because it's a 16th dynasty. Ming Voss, it's going to be your retirement. It's incredibly valuable. It doesn't matter your headache. It doesn't matter how much the boss yelled at you. It doesn't matter what else has happened or gone wrong. You protect that. You come home from work. You've had a bad day. Everything went on bad, yada, yada, yada. A little piece of the Ming Voss nicks you. What do you do? You want out. Okay, let's go. You're ready, aren't you? All right, let's go at it. How do you respond? Peter would say, you treat them as the more precious vessel, the more costly, the more fragile, the Ming Voss that they are. You treat them as one who is more costly. Hard to do. My goodness, this is one of the most difficult type of messages to preach because um, I know myself. But, but this is why you do this. You might say, well, pff, I'm not going to do that. Forget that. This is, why, this is why we do this. So that, does he say, so that you might have a happily ever after. No, 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 no. Now, that's, that's not in Peter's mind. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. That can mean several different things as well. Uh, probably not happened to y'all, but it's happened to me on just once or twice. Right before we get ready to eat, uh, Teresa and myself may have had a few words. And perhaps I didn't handle myself the greatest. But we sit down to eat, and now it's time to pray. And in my house, usually we pray before we eat, and I usually am the one to pray. But we're sitting there, and we've just had these where things are not going well, and it's time to pray. And you're going, and the food's getting cold. And so you need to bring the kids, let's, let's, let's go, Dad. And so what do you do? Well, what I do, it's a good tactic at work, is, Nathan, why don't you pray tonight? So I pass it off to somebody else because I can't pray. Or maybe, maybe you want to pray. At that point, I don't even want to pray. Or, or maybe you do want to pray. And so, you, but you've had this battle and you go upstairs, you get on your knees and you, you know, you start to pray, but you know the person that you've made commitments to before God, the person that is supposed to mean more to you than anybody else is feeling dishonored and disrespected and hurt because in fact, that's what your words, that's what your actions conveyed. And you start to try to pray. You just can't. I just can't. I can't. Until that's fixed. Could mean that. Or perhaps it means this. You have this battle with your spouse where you respond in a very improper way, where you haven't treated her like a fine uh, piece of china that she is, but like a 99-cent Walmart mug. Uh, And you go on your knees to pray, and you pray. And you pray an elaborate prayer. And it's an emotional-filled prayer. And it's one of the best prayers you perhaps have ever prayed. God says, I didn't hear a word you said. Incredible principle we see in Scripture. That your vertical relationship is directly dependent on your horizontal relationships. And so this marriage, but I believe we could, if we had time, we'd go through all Scripture... If you're a single person and your, your life is a relational graveyard, you've just buried relationship after relationship after relationship and you're not interested in going back and fixing and taking care of and admitting wrong, 
God says, you might think that you've got a great relationship with me. But we have an incredible ability to be self-deceived. We don't. We don't. Look what Peter, this is a key thing for Peter too. Look what he goes on to say. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. That's Peter's goal. You can have a relationship with God. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. It says, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. This is an incredible uh, travesty, I think, in, in the, the church. Not necessarily our church. I think the church as a whole. Let's look and see what Wayne Grudem He's an evangelical uh, scholar. Look what he says about this text. He says, So concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding way with their wives that he interrupts his relationship with them when they're not doing so. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing on her honor. To take the time to develop and maintain a good marriage is God's will. It is serving God. It is a spiritual activity pleasing in His sight. Once in a while in the church, you'll see a gal who is uh, maybe putting herself out as a godly woman. Maybe everyone thinks that's a godly woman. But she doesn't respect her husband. She belittles her husband. She treats him very poorly. She's not interested in listening to him in any way, shape, or form. But yet godly person God says no she's not it's a head case self-deception she's not every once in a while you'll see a man in the church godly person he's got an opinion he's got a thought on scripture he's got a thought on what we should do he's got an understanding what we should do he's a great teacher maybe everyone thinks wow godly person God says if his walk is not right with his wife if he's disrespecting and not honoring his bride it's not a godly person. It's not there. Our vertical relationship with our God is directly dependent. This is why we need a happily ever after. Not because it's fun. Not because it makes life more exciting. Secondary. Because it impacts. It directly affects our relationship with our God. Because what he's established is the, the, the horizontal relationship of a man and wife. It's really a picture of Jesus and the church, Ephesians 5. When you got married, the day you got married, you received a cloth. Uh, the task that was set to you was to weave a picture of your marriage. Now, the deal is, is you cannot not weave. We might say, well, I'm not. every day you weave into this picture. Now, the reality is we might weave a, a dull, drab picture of pain, of anger, of harsh words, of selfishness. Uh, you got to know. Your kids will see that picture. The people close to you, you think they're not see- They'll see, they'll know that picture as well. Let's forget everything that's been woven. Even if it's good things have been woven into our tapestry in the past, let's forget that for just a moment. Let's say that today, if you're married, you get a brand new cloth. And Jesus is going to come back in one year. And he's saying... Weave this year. Weave a beautiful picture. Use the, the green thread. The green thread is the, the, the mental development thread. It's when you spend time with your spouse reading together, 
discussing what you've read together, when you, when you understand what your spouse has an affinity for and you give yourself to that and you help them learn and achieve and be that, when you do, do that, the green thread is being woven through your tapestry. The blue thread is the communication thread. Now, communication is rated as number one or two according to what surveys you look at. Top reason for marital breakup. So this is a big thing. And communication is two sides, right? We understand it's listening as well as sharing. And if your spouse won't share with you, there's a re- maybe there's a reason why they won't. Maybe it's because he or she has learned that you're not a very good listener. That if they share with you what's really going on in their heart, you're going to judge or you're going to mock it or you're going to make fun of it or you're going to throw a Bible verse at them and make them feel guilty for feeling that way. or think So they're just not going to go down that road because they've learned. Uh, that's not listening. God style. Communication also is speaking. It's, it's opening my heart and sharing what's really gone, just the superficial, not just what they want to hear. And this is why it's so dangerous because I make myself very vulnerable if I share what's really going on inside. But as we communicate, the blue thread is woven through your tapestry. The white thread is called the, the thread of, of special surprises. Uh, what that is, is that's, it's seeing how you can communicate to your spouse that though the world might beat them up, Though the world might think they're valueless, they have incredible value in your own eyes. This is remembering special occasions. This is a special gift. This is remembering the anniversary of their mom's passing. It's, it's whatever is important to that person, you do. The special somethings. And as you do, the white thread is woven through your tapestry. The gold thread. Very, very, very important thread. Because this is your spiritual thread. And this is why this one's so important. Because statistics, again, according to what you read... Uh, 40 to 50% of all marriages will end in divorce. But for a man and woman who spend time reading God's word and praying together, it's one in 500. So as you spend time praying for your spouse, figuring out what their spiritual gift is and helping them be able to serve, not because the church needs stuff done, but because as we serve God, he grows us. It's, it's reading God's word together. It's discussing sermons together. Not necessarily ridiculing the pastor, okay, that kind of thing. But it's still discussing. And as you do, that gold thread is woven through your tapestry. Red thread is the physical. We forget sometimes that our sexuality was God's idea. Um, we're going to be devoting the message, not next week, the following week, to that, to that topic as we wind down this series. But in this life, we know we've got problems mentally. I forget stuff sometimes. We've got problems emotionally. I'm confused sometimes. We've got problems um, physically. We've got problems relationally. We've got problems uh, financially. We've got problems all over the place. But if you have a problem in this category, that's not acceptable. That's just not acceptable. And, and maybe because this category is we are the most vulnerable. Maybe in this category uh, there's terror or there is pain from past experience. Whatever the issues are, it's just easier, isn't it? If there's problems here, to just forget it. Let's just, let's just, we're just going to forget this part. But is that what God would honor? Is that what God desires? God created sexual union between a man and woman in the context of marriage to be an incredibly powerful thread that would tie the two together. And if you say, you know what, I don't understand, this is not pleasurable, this is a pain, this is struggling emotionally in so many ways, however, I'm going to really seek to honor God even in this way with my spouse, as you do. The red thread 
is being woven through your tapestry. Now, can you imagine, again, you have your, your cloth, no tapestry on it. Can you imagine pulling on that baby? It probably would not take a lot to rip it in two. But can you imagine a tapestry with thousands of threads? You try to tear it in two. It's going to take an awful lot. Again, if I said at the end of this year something was going to happen, I can't even tell you what it is, but something's going to happen that's going to put incredible pressure on your marriage. By golly, it better be strong. You better have a great, incredible tapestry woven because if you don't, it's going to crumble. We've got a year. What might it look like? How might it happen? Make it sure it doesn't happen serendipitously by accident because my spouse decided to pick up the ball in this one, but because we decided that we were going to live with our, our spouse according to knowledge of God's word, of them. We were going to treat them for who they are, not what they do. And we were going to do this because it honors God. It builds our relationship with him. 